There's so much in the scriptures that speak of our gaze, of our sight. But it's spoken of in terms of what is to be revealed as truth. There's this connection between words and vision. So this morning, my prayer is that the Lord would open up, as Paul would say to the Ephesians, the eyes of your heart to give you understanding. For those of you who do not know Christ at all, to understand the nature of the gospel for you. The need that you have to be saved, redeemed. Not just from sins, but sin, a sin nature. A sin nature that has gone hard after trying to find satisfaction in the world. When God has created you to find satisfaction in Him. And for those of you who know the gospel, that you may see rightly and again how the gospel applies to your life, to your circumstances. And some of those circumstances that relate to suffering are some of the most difficult to see the gospel come through, especially when it comes to having been treated unjustly. You know, there's, there's a couple of times that Paul encourages the church to imitate him. I confess to you as your pastor, I very rarely have that kind of confidence to say, follow Christ like I do. In fact, my tendency is to say, be better than me. I'm trying to just point you in a direction. And so we're sojourning in many ways together in this. But that should be our ambition to live in such a way that we're not drawing attention to ourselves as much as we are confident that the way that we are going after him is according to the scriptures. One of the hardest ways to lead an exemplary life is when we suffer. Now, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our series today. And as you're turning there, let me remind you where we are coming out of. So in chapter 2, after he gives his, first, his charge in chapter 1 about being elect exiles and what it means to have this inheritance of this kingdom that's to come. In chapter 2, he begins to deal with the fact that he's addressing these churches in Asia Minor. Uh, we would know it to be Turkey in the larger region, uh, churches that had been scattered after the early persecution of the church. And this, these churches are mixed with Gentile and Jew. And in doing so, he's speaking about them being living stones, that they are being built together, put together, placed together in specific regions for the purpose of the gospel to go forth. And in the midst of this, they are facing great difficulty. Peter is acknowledging that they are suffering for their faith. See, 1 Peter deals with how the church should respond to the external suffering of being persecuted by those on the outside. Okay, and those could be religious forces or those could be political forces. Second Peter, by contrast, and we will eventually get to Second Peter. Second Peter is really about what we do in dealing with the suffering that happens internally, largely because of the entrance of false teachers into the churches themselves. And I think that these very much are related. So essentially, when we suffer and go through difficulty, suffering allows there to be this ground where we are severely tested in our faith of trusting whether or not we are really following God's way. Because if you follow a particular path and that path ends up leading to suffering, by nature, our tendency is to think, well, that's not necessarily the right path. Or we want to avoid pain and we say, you know what, regardless of whether or not it's right, I think I want to not hurt anymore. And too often we become susceptible in those moments to hearing teachers teach differently. 
So we have to be careful how we respond to suffering because if, if we're not careful and we don't understand biblically the merits of suffering for the sake of righteousness, then we will inadvertently allow ourselves to be susceptible to teaching that is not clearly and wholly biblical. And that causes divisions in the church. I mean, just think about it today. Think about how many different teachings, maybe as you've we don't really flip channels all that much anymore, but if you were coming across different TV preachers or maybe you've read different books or listened to different podcasts, you can hear any number of things that will tell you if you have enough faith, then you will not suffer. Or sometimes you will hear, if you have enough faith, not only will you not suffer, but you will be blessed aplenty in this life, basically making heaven on earth. So the gospel then becomes a means for you to have an end that you've desired instead of you becoming fashioned into the end that God desires for you. There are some on the other extreme. I just don't think their podcasts are all that popular that may say, you know, if you're doing everything right, then you're just going to suffer and there's always going to be pain. And I mean, I just, you know, people that just always promote their pain uh, as a banner. Um, look, you can suffer for a lot of reasons. You can suffer for evil. You can suffer even in the midst of teaching falsely. So just because you suffer doesn't mean necessarily you're doing things right either. We have to have biblical discernment on the reason that we're suffering, the nature of our suffering, and understanding too the purpose in that suffering. So then as he goes on through chapter 2, speaking about the various ways that we submit to different authorities in our lives, and even in those authority relationships where we are treated unjustly, we're still to submit. We're basically still called by God to do things in a way that please God. Basically, the means, the means is just as important to God as the ends. Really, our mentality of do whatever it takes to get this is not necessarily applicable to the Christian life. The Christian life, we are called to live in a certain way regardless of the outcome. It's always right to do the right thing. Always. Regardless of the outcome. And that goes against our nature so much. So much. And as he goes through and talks about these varying relationships that we, that we have, and even when, we're, when we are dealt with unjustly, that we're continued to submit and to live in this peaceable, honoring way to others. And then he goes on and deals with how those relationships even look in households, households that are messy, households that where there can be a master treat a servant or even a slave unjustly. And slaves are still called to submit Again, never the endorsement of slavery, as you know, but the household arrangements at the time being that there were household servants and slaves. And he even called them to be a light even to unjust masters. Then in 8 through 12, as we talked about last week, we really talked about suffering in the right way. 8 through 12 really deals with that largely. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 34. So last week we talked about suffering in the right way. This week we're going to talk about suffering for the right reason. 
suffering for the right reason. It is so important that we understand the nature of this. In fact, I I do believe that by and large, this section of Scripture, which is going to be verses 13 through 17, deals with suffering as a result of doing righteous deeds. Okay? So I'm not trying to turn this on its head, but but I want you to hear... um, a side take on suffering for the sake of righteousness. And that is suffering for the sake of righteousness is not simply the result of. So basically you're not just suffering as a result of living righteously. Sometimes we suffer for the purpose of showing righteousness. In fact, I would say that for the believer, every time we suffer, it is for the purpose of putting on display righteousness. So when we say suffer for the sake of righteousness, it's not just causal, but it's effectual. Righteousness, showing forth the justice of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God. Yes, absolutely. Our passage will be clear. We, if we are to suffer, and if we do suffer, then let our suffering be because the lost world is treating us with basically an evil response to the fact that we are living as Christians. Let that be the reason that we suffer if we suffer, if it's the Lord's will for us to suffer. But please understand this. Whether you're suffering because of that or simply because the Lord has allowed you to go through other types of suffering because of physical ailment or other circumstances that have gone on in your life where you've truly been a victim of evil, ill treatment, please understand your response to that suffering is also always for the sake of righteousness for others to see, always. So even though there can be so much confusion around why we suffer, ultimately understand this, for the believer You are to respond in a certain way. So regardless of the reason, you look, and certainly if it's because of sin, you need to acknowledge that. In fact, if we were to, I'll just go ahead and skip down there. If you go down to the end of our passage in verse 8, actually our passage for next week, but verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If you're suffering for righteousness, for for the sake of sin, then I would encourage you, first of all, if you've never come to Christ trusting that he alone can remove your sin and restore you to himself, please understand this. Perhaps he has allowed you to come to the end of yourself over and over and over again. You have suffered over and over again as a result of your sin. And praise God, he has brought you to a place like this or even online to listen and perhaps by his grace come to an understanding that he is showing you your need for himself. But also understand this, even if you are suffering as a result of sinfulness, do not come to Christ to somehow avoid all suffering for the rest of your days because that is simply not true. But here's what is a guarantee. It's a guarantee that if you do not come to Christ, you will continue to suffer as a result of sin and ultimately and eternally, you will suffer eternal punishment in hell as a result of sinfulness. But if you come to Christ, you are guaranteed never to eternally suffer apart from him. And you will momentarily probably suffer in this world, but you will have reason and cause. And he will give you the grace to endure. So in 8 through 12, as he gives us this reason, we now dive into verse 13 where he says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. He's already said earlier, back up in verse 9, that you suffer for the sake of, you don't speak evil of others. In fact, you bless others. He says, even if you suffer, then it's for your own happiness. He says, have no fear of them, the outside world, those who are persecuting you, nor be troubled. That word means agitated. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, ultimately, there's one reason, one right reason to suffer, and that's for righteousness' sake. But I'm going to unpack that in a couple of ways with a couple of points, three primary points that relate to suffering for righteousness' sake. And the first one is simply as plain as it sounds, which is a right reason to suffer is to suffer for doing good. Now, he asked this rhetorical question in verse 13, which I'm not sure is fully or totally rhetorical. And here's what I mean. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And then verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. Now, in a sense, no one can harm you for doing good. Now, you could say rhetorically, well, that's a great question, but the fact is people do suffer for doing good. So what is he talking about? Well, I do think it's rhetorical in the sense that when you look at the end in verse 13, he says, if you should suffer then it's the Lord's will to do so. But I think when he focuses here on the fact of harm, the injury that it can cause, that's where I think that on an eternal scale, it's not rhetorical. Those who are in Christ, who act justly and live righteously, cannot be harmed by those who harm us in this life. We cannot ultimately be harmed or thrown off God will not tip off of his throne and our eternal security will not be shaken. No matter what men do to us in this world, no matter what happens, no matter what assails us, in that sense, I do not believe it to be rhetorical. But certainly we could then, we could say this, you know, in Matthew 5.10, when, when Christ is giving the Sermon on the Mount and he said, you know, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think in there we find some of this teaching where Peter is saying, there is blessing, there is happiness for those who are suffering for doing the right thing. Your inheritance is not here. That's why whatever they touch, whatever they harm, even if they plunder your goods, context for me would say he's focused on the eternal inheritance you have in Christ. So what harm? can anyone who treats you with ill do to you when your treasure is somewhere that's untouchable? So this means that sometimes suffering can be instructive. Sometimes when we suffer and we feel that loss, sometimes the loss that we feel, and it, couldn't, it doesn't have to just be material goods. There could be real suffering, and as a result, maybe we lose some freedoms. Maybe we lose some other things, but if we're not careful, we will find that our hands are gripping too tightly to an earthly citizenship 
because we evaluate the response of the loss. So sometimes the suffering can be instructive because, and I think this is what's behind a little bit of that blessing that you will be blessed. It doesn't sound like a happy thing to suffer, but when he says that our greatest blessing is in knowing where our treasure lies in heaven, it is a pursuit of blessing. It is a pursuit of happiness if more and more our grip on the things of this world are loosened and we are reminded that everything of value is already preserved for us, kept for us, untouched, unscathed, as he's already stated in chapter one, in heaven. What can happen to us? So let suffering be instructive in that. Let it drive us to the deeper happiness, the deeper blessing of knowing that a treasure awaits. But he says this, he says, but if you do, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So even if in doing good we suffer, let's remember a couple of things. It needs to be for righteousness sake. And that word righteousness is justice. It needs to be for the sake of there being justice. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean just social justice, although I wouldn't discount that either. We understand that a social justice, basically like racial reconciliation or something like that, is certainly good and right, even for Christians to participate in. But we also understand that, that ultimate reconciliation must occur only through the gospel. So in my view, in my opinion of what, how Scripture would have us go here is that we actually use opportunities to exercise justice to go further to show how God reconciles us through His Son, Jesus Christ. It never stops there. There's never going to be an eternal hope just because different races are now acting a little bit happier with one another. But on the other hand, that should not cause us at all to be dismissive of the fact that there is great need for things like racial reconciliation in our world and just say, well, only the gospel is going to heal people and we do nothing about it. We have an opportunity to show justice and righteousness on the way to sharing the words of life of the gospel. So even if we suffer, let it be first for righteousness sake and let also you understand that it's for your ultimate joy as we've already talked about. It deepens your perspective of where you find real joy. You're loosening your grip on the things that you lose in this world, what you're suffering from, and you are reminded that everything that is of great value and of the greatest value to you is in heaven preserved. So remember that. So if you do suffer, just remember, there are some reasons. He's loosening your grip, pouring into you a deeper happiness on things that are untouched by this world and kept for you in heaven by him. So that's good. You're suffering for doing good. And he says to do so in a fearless way. And again, I think this is where the connection comes in that rhetorical question in verse 13. Because he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled or nor be agitated. Don't fear what men do to, do to you. Why? Because again, they cannot touch that which is eternal, that which you should be valuing the most. A second thing he deals with is the first part of verse 15. Suffer to honor Christ. So again, as we're unpacking suffering for the sake of righteousness, the first kind of subpoint of that or the three-legged stool of this would be suffer for doing the right thing, doing good, doing justice. Suffer to honor Christ. It says in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now here, this word hearts is a fantastic word. 
Because this word for hearts actually deals with what they would have understood to be the whole person. The whole person, everything of who they are. So in some points, I would say to wholly honor Christ. And I mean that with W-H-O-L-L-Y. To make sure that you are with all of who you are honoring him. Because when we suffer, it's a whole body, whole life experience. It's emotional, it's mental, it's physical, it's spiritual. When we are truly suffering, it affects everything of who we are. And we need to remember that. You know, there's, you know, kind of a phrase that, that was coming out years ago of just the, you know, the body keeps count or keeps score. When we go through suffering, you've gone through this. In fact, this overall fatigue that so many have experienced through COVID, through different types of suffering, there's a fatigue, even a mental fatigue that's occurred. And that doesn't mean we have to become psychologists just to simply understand God has made us whole people, whole persons. And when we honor Christ, we're to honor him with all of who we are. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when we suffer, understand it's to help cause us and bring us to a point of honoring him with all of who we are. Because suffering reminds us that we are not Christ. We are not God. But in our hearts, let there be a determination that we will honor him with all of who we are. He is the Lord. Not our oppressors, not anyone else. No matter what happens, we're not going to give more attention to those who might cause evil to us than we should. In fact, just to simply understand, whatever God uses as an instrument for our suffering, it is to draw us nearer to him. And too many times, what this tells me is that in our suffering, we end up focusing so much on the person who has performed an ill upon us. And this is how people get caught up in never forgiving other people who have harmed them. Because they focus so much on the evil or the instrument. They don't focus on what the Lord did. Now, that's not to say that the Lord did the evil, but the Lord still allowed something to occur for the purpose of our pouring into all of who we are, into the person of who Christ is, honoring him. So don't give honor to your enemy. I'm not saying ignore it, but we can be riddled in our lives by a lack of forgiveness for things that have occurred to us and happened to us. And when that happens, when we focus on the oppressor, the one who's performed the evil instead of on the Christ, which God allowed us to experience an evil to press us deeper into himself. When we focus on the oppressor, we will tend to try to exact a justice on our own or just pray all the time for judgment upon the person instead of focusing on Christ. We are to suffer to honor Christ wholly to him, but also wholly in the H-O-L-Y sense. Because it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So in your hearts, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, with all of who you are, honor Christ as holy. Separate, distinct, set apart. Other. He is both within and without of all of your circumstances and your suffering. Honor him as being set apart, as being the perfect one who is still with you, who is going with you through your pain, going with you through your hurt. Set him aside, and that meant not in the sense of ignorance, no, in the sense of no matter what has happened, no matter what he has allowed, he is still 
outside and above and beyond this. Even the healing is outside, above and beyond this. My Christ is outside, above and beyond this and I'm waiting for him to come. I set him aside as holy. He is the one that I seek to be after. Suffer to honor Christ with all of who you are for the sake of the fact that he is holy, that he is perfect, he is righteous, he is good. And he has set this aside for this purpose of showing Christ. And that's part of the understanding of honoring Christ in it is that Christ shows through in the suffering. It's not you, it's not your response to it. In fact, isn't that where he goes in just a second when he says to be ready to make a defense? When people ask, why do you have this hope? Well, the hopeful defense that you give is based on the one in whom you find hope, not your ability to have hoped really well. And that's the third part. That's the third of the three-legged stool besides suffering for doing the right thing, doing good, suffering to honor Christ. But as we set him apart, to suffer to show hope to the hopeless. The second part of Verse 15 on through 16. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In suffering for righteousness' sake, it's because we're doing the right thing. It's because Christ is being set aside as being the one who surfaces in our suffering, who, who we are honoring in our suffering, but also that because it becomes this declaration of hope to the hopeless, people around us when they see us suffer. So for instance, go back to the, the list of those who are to submit. So when he talks about, for instance, masters and those who are servants, let's extrapolate that to your workplace. If a coworker sees you suffering at the hands of someone who is treating you unjustly, and maybe they treat, maybe they're equitable, maybe they treat everyone in your office that unjustly, but your response is distinctly Christian. Someone notices something and says, why do you respond like this? Why doesn't this bother you more? Essentially, they're saying, why do you have the hope that you do? And that doesn't mean you become emotionally distant and it doesn't bother you at all. Just simply, there's a distinctiveness about your response to the injustice going on in the office. We are simply putting ourselves in position to create this holy curiosity about our lives, which is driven by the hope that we find in Christ. This is the unspoken apologetic. The unspoken, see, regular apologetics, if you know, is to make a defense for the faith. It's not necessarily evangelism, but it's simply, you know, for, for many people, they are very articulate in things related to science, to creationism, um, to other aspects of, of our world. And, it, and it usually it relates to things about science or good and evil, um, how to, you know, why do bad things happen to good people, those kinds of things, and reconciling them. There are a lot of people out there who are great apologists, they are able to make a defense for the faith based on some merit of intellectual abilities. But that doesn't necessarily lead anyone to faith. It just simply 
gives a reasonableness to the faith, it still requires the gospel to be shared and for people to repent and have faith in Christ in order to actually come to Jesus. It's in a sense kind of a pre-evangelism. Well, when he says here to make a defense, to prepare and make a defense, that word defense is apologia. This is a lifestyle apologetic. You are basically living, acting, and responding to difficulty in such a way that is laying out this reasonableness for your faith so that when someone asks, then you're ready to share it. So essentially, this isn't, there's, this isn't you know, uh, kind of theological rocket science. This is about just not being hypocritical. That if we're Christian, then we respond like Christ. It goes against so much of our human sensibilities when we are treated unjustly. In fact, when I was preparing for this, I was thinking while I was watching the Super Bowl and, and I was, uh, and even though, yes, I was, I was also cheering for the Rams. And that wasn't because of Brandon. I just was, I, was, I wanted Stafford. Stafford is a Dallas kid. And so I wanted Stafford to, to do well and, uh, it felt like Burrow had a lot of chances down the road. But in the course of it, as I'm watching it, and even though I'm cheering for them, I'm also, you know, thinking how insufferable Brandon's going to be when, when, when they win, and, um, and, and he is. And so, but, but in the course of it, what's, uh, you know, I was thinking, though, how often when there's, um, of course, there weren't a lot of penalties called, but when there are penalties called, especially for unnecessary roughness, who often is the guy that gets caught? Yeah, the second one. Thank you so much for that. It's the second one, right? It's the guy that reacts or responds. Too often, this is what happens in our Christian walk. We end up kind of hijacking our own defensibility of the, of the gospel because we, first take, we take the first hit, so to speak. Someone treats us unjustly. But then at some point, we kind of feel like that we've done enough. And so then we respond. Of course, then what are the people around us going to see? They're not going to ask you, why do you have the hope that you have? Probably the first time you respond, okay. They're going to wait. And it's not even necessarily that intentional. It's because they don't even know how to articulate, how to even ask such a serious question. Because the lost world doesn't live in that kind of serious thinking about their own soul and their circumstances. They're just trying to survive. But too often we end up hijacking our own defensibility when it comes to the gospel because we feel like we've gone far enough and eventually we just snap. You know what? I've endured enough and maybe that will outweigh it. And it's almost like we have this Catholic perspective of suffering. Enough good outweighing the bad. The problem is the lost world will often see. Now, I know it sounds like that you have to be perfect. You don't. But, but guys, even if we do end up snapping and having those moments where we respond like the world would respond, guess what? The world feels justified in that response. When we respond that way, what should we do? Whoever's heard it, whoever's seen it, man, you know, I should not have responded that way, even if they treated you poorly. Make it right. Because, again, you're honoring Christ in this. You're putting him out in the forefront. This isn't about defending yourself and your position. This is about putting Christ out in front. So he says, be prepared. This, is, this word is very much like just simply preparing a meal. You're gathering all the different elements together to make a meal to set before people to consume. 
which happens when? Long before the meal is served, long before there is consumption, long before there are people seated at the table. In many ways, your preparation for suffering rightly is happening long before you ever suffer. This is why that perspective in Peter is so important to understand that we are citizens of another world. You need to let that go down deep because it's going to be tested. Responding in a right and kind way, you need to let that have practical outworkings when it's just a little bit hard because it's going to get really hard at some point. And you're still going to be by God required, commanded to respond with kindness, with respectability, with honor even though you're treated and maligned with injustice. So in this preparation, we, we determine we're going to suffer in the right way. Just like he says in 8 through 12, we're going to suffer for the right reasons. That's part of the preparation. If I'm going to suffer, if that's the Lord's will, then let it be for the right reasons. I'm not going to let it be evil for evil, reviling for reviling. I don't want, I don't want to be the guy caught in unnecessary roughness being the second guy that reacts. But I'm also going to be prepared in this way. I'm going to be prepared in articulating my faith. I think that's part of the preparation. He says here, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope. The reason that I think that this is part of the preparation, that you're not just determined and resolved to suffer in the right way for the right reason, but you're also prepared with words because the word for reason is logos. When they ask you for a reason, they want words in return. So you've got to be prepared for words. You need to know how to articulate, this is why I have hope in Christ. Or this is why I've responded this way. It's because of Christ. I know that I was made by God for a purpose and I couldn't live it because I was in my sin. And one day or at one period of my life, God just showed me that I'd been pursuing life for myself and he showed me that I was against him, that I was a sinner. And in my sin, he showed me that he died, not just as some kind of example, but actually in my place, I actually deserved that death. And I couldn't live the life that God required, but Jesus did and could. So he lived that life for me. He died the death in my place that I deserved. And actually, as crazy as it sounds, I actually believe he rose from the dead. And I know that he has saved me. And he's preparing a place for me. And the only reason I have this hope is because really in the big scheme of things, this isn't what my life's all about, even if I'm not treated rightly. Be prepared with words to be able to share why do you have the hope that you have in the midst of suffering. People aren't going to pay attention to everything going well, to when you're doing well, when everything's going great. But they will pay attention when you're being treated unjustly, even by the world standards. And you respond differently. So we have to be prepared to show this hope to the hopeless. We also have to be prepared, in a sense, in our presentation. Here's what I mean by that. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So as he says, we're to give a reasonable defense always being ready to give this logos, this word, defense, this word, apology, apologetic for why we have this faith, why we have this hope. He says, do it with gentleness and respect. Guys, sometimes the person that may ask you why you're responding that way 
is the very person who's treating you this way. I know that's not going to happen with systems, but it could happen with a boss. It could happen with an unsafe spouse. Give your response in gentleness and respect. See, the same way that we are to respond to suffering in 8 through 12 is also the way we articulate why we're suffering in 13 through 17. This gentleness, this respect. There's humility going on here. So we're prepared to show the hope to the hopeless. We present with reasonableness, gentleness, respectfulness, this hope that we have to the hopeless when they ask. But we also do it with kind of this persevering nature. So again, remember, we're talking about kind of this three-legged stool of what supports suffering for the sake of righteousness. We're, we're suffering because we're doing the right thing. We're suffering because we're honoring Christ. We're suffering to show hope to the hopeless. And within showing hope to the hopeless, we are prepared to make a defense in our actions and in our speech. But we're also doing it with this persevering way. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's in verse 16. He says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, that means that you're entering into a slanderous situation with a clear conscience of behavior, motivation, all these things. Again, I know it sounds like perfection. We're just simply talking about trajectory. We're talking about a cadence to your life where if there is sin and when there is sin, you are confessing it. You are basically keeping your accounts of sin short. You're saying what they used to say in the South, fessed up, confessed up. You are keeping your sin confessed before the Lord. You are following him. And even though you stumble and trip and even fail at times, you are still pursuing him. In that good and clear conscience, when you are slandered, He says, those who revile your good behavior, they'll be put to shame. And what he means by that basically is that there will be no teeth at all to their argument. Basically, if they continue to press, they are the ones that will look foolish. Which you know what that will do. Now, that's not the time for you to go, ha ha, I got you. That's actually counter to the whole thing, right? The, The point there is that other people will even see that. So just speculate the people again back in the office. If they don't ask why you have the hope that you have in response to how the boss is treating you, what if they just never ask that question, at least right then? But you keep responding in the right way and the boss keeps pressing. And eventually, as as the boss is trying to get you, maybe he's even trying to force you to do something to get you out. And you just keep doing, keep being quiet and calm and peaceable And as you're doing so, at some point, people around will eventually see that and it will just scream. This is so foolish. What's going on? Your good conscience allows you to live in this way. Basically, knowing that there is nothing that's really held against you, so to speak. Again, this, in my view, this is all part of the preparation. We're living in such a way that sin is not ravaging us, that even if there is sin, we are confessing it. And we're making sure that we are living rightly the best we can before him, following him according to his word, with the people of God, being reminded of these things, looking heavenward to our kingdom that's to come. And we have this clear conscience. We have this self-control not to respond Because in conclusion, I would say this is the best way for you not to waste your suffering. 
Don't waste your suffering. Suffering has a reason. It has a purpose. It should be for righteousness sake, both in its cause, but also its result. It should result in people seeing the righteousness of Christ. And if they see it, and then they happen to ask you about it, then you're ready to actually speak about the righteousness of Christ. And who knows, by God's grace, a person may come to faith. And is that about them having a better work experience and dealing with injustice like you? No. It's about them having citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And then they get to enter into that fray where no longer can uh, an oppressor ever really truly harm me. You go back to verse 13 and, and realize that's not so rhetorical. When I'm so focused on the fact that Christ is my Lord, Christ is my King, and Christ is my home, I mean, nobody can touch that, no matter what they do. Because he says, in conclusion, he says, what's better? It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will. And I know that sounds hard, but guys, this protects you from false teaching that I mentioned earlier. Because here's what I mean. To me, almost all false teaching that comes into the life of the church is because people cannot reconcile suffering and difficulty up against what they know about the goodness of God. It still comes down to bad things and good people. They can't reconcile it. But what we have to remember is that God causes or allows all things. And it's for his glory and it's for the honor of his son. And in doing so, it's actually for our blessing, as the text has said it, because it's going to loosen our grip on things in this world and, remember, and remind us that we have a grip around us that's tight by Christ himself of a kingdom to come. And as difficult as it is, we have to reconcile that it is indeed God's will at times for us to suffer. Because I promise you, if you can't reconcile it, guys, you will twist something in Scripture to try to make it fit into your brain, into your reasoning. And that's where false teachers can come in. So I want to encourage you, church, to remember that in your suffering, to determine, suffer for in the right way, absolutely. Eight through 12. But make sure you're suffering for the right reason, for righteousness sake both as the cause of your suffering, but also as the result of your suffering. And as you suffer for righteousness sake, do so with that three-legged stool in mind that I'm going to suffer for doing good. I'm going to suffer in my, in, because it's going to honor Christ and he's going to come out in this. And I'm going to suffer in righteousness because I'm going to offer hope to the hopeless because someone may ask me why I'm responding like this to difficulty. And then be ready to give that defense. I don't know where you are this morning in your hurt. Maybe you're not suffering because someone's treating you unjustly. Maybe you're suffering because you've seen someone else treated unjustly. That can be really hard. And a lot of us have that kind of pain with children. Maybe you've seen a child treated really, really terribly. Pray this for them. More than sharing your anger with them in their injustice, share this in prayer because this will bring about healing. This will bring about real hope. This brings about a redemptive purpose for whatever they've gone through 
if they are in Christ. And if they're not, by God's grace, let your response to this and to their situation cause them to be the ones that ask, why do you have the hope? Whatever your cause for suffering, remember what he says in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And make no mistake, we all are unrighteous. There's none righteous, no, not one, according to Romans 3. But Christ is the only righteous one. So we are reminded that he forgives sin. So if you are suffering because of sin, remember, if you're a Christian, you don't have to be saved again. But you do need to remember that what he did on the cross was sufficient even for what you did last night. Ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you and to follow him. If you've never come to him, treat it as a blessing, as a wake-up call that you're suffering because of you running headlong into sinful pursuits all the time is just showing you it's a dead end. And it's only going to lead a path, to a path of eternal suffering. Come to Christ today. Our God, as we close our time in your word, I want to thank you that you have seen fit to allow many of us to suffer in various ways, even for various reasons. But ultimately, I pray that we would be determined to honor you in all the ways that verses 8 through 12 speak of, and that we would be determined that in our suffering, if you choose to let us suffer, then let it be because we are living righteously. We're doing the right thing. We want you to be honored in it, and we want to be ready to give hope to other people. Forgive us for focusing on our oppressors, focusing on the evil that's been done to us. And God, that doesn't mean we become dismissive. It doesn't mean we become uncaring, disconnected from emotion, not at all. Lord, I just pray that we would see that there is eternal purpose in it all. And may you be glorified even in our suffering. And Lord, for those that are seeing their sin for what it is this morning, I pray that you would bring them relief through the resurrected, having righteously died once for the unrighteous Christ, that they would come to him by faith, turning away from sin and turning to you. For the Christian that this suffering for righteousness has been a, a bit lost on them because they know that they're suffering right now because they have been diving headlong back into sin. Lord, remind them of the sufficiency of the cross, and I pray that you would help them to, to see that if they do suffer, the, so much more joy in knowing that they're suffering because they're doing the right thing. So Lord, help them to repent as well and to know that your blood that, that has already been shed, that they already have accepted as sufficient, is sufficient still even for right now. And may they find relief. Do your will in our midst, in our lives. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.